0: Stories leading every media outlet this morning. Uh, the first story necessarily, the one out of San Jose, California, another mass shooting yesterday, uh, work-related. We don't know the details. What we do know is that nine people are dead. And so prayers go up for even as concern goes out to uh, the families and, uh, and the folks at the Valley Light Rail there in Northern California. The other story, leading every news outlet this morning, um, or at least the storyline, is one that many media outlets ignored um, or even worse, wrote off a year ago. And the reason that they wrote it off was that the narrative did not fit their political ideology, or worse, it was a storyline that supported a presidential administration that they, the media, loathed. And so I'm talking here about the origin story of COVID-19. So I'm going to just survey a a few of the headlines this morning related to this. Here's how CNN is characterizing it. Why scientists are suddenly more interested in the lab link theory of COVID's origin. Uh, Here is the Washington Post headline. The Wuhan lab leak theory is getting more attention. Uh, And then they say that's because key evidence is still missing. The subhead um, is also interesting for The Washington Post, because this is a little bit of, for those of you familiar with the concept of CYA, here it comes. The subhead here, the needle is moving because of politics, not science. Um, here's how The Wall Street Journal is characterizing it. Now, The Wall Street Journal, to be fair, did, did cover this story, um, has been covering this story all along. And here is their headline today, The Virus Lab Theory's New Credibility. The evidence catches up with Fauci and other Wuhan COVID deniers. So um and then this one. <clears throat> Biden, that would be President Biden. Biden orders closer review of COVID origins as US Intel weighs Wuhan lab link lab leak theory. Now see what the headline there fails to mention is that there was a US intelligence investigation, which President Biden shut down when he took office. And yesterday, both Dr. Fauci of now the CDC and Dr. Collins uh, of the uh, NIH told Congress they were never consulted when the Biden administration shut down the COVID origin investigation. Um, And so this is going to be a conversation today. And here's, I think, from a Christian worldview, um, one of the ways that we need to frame it. We live in a world of narratives. We live in a, in a world of storylines. Um, I think the conversation that happens nationally related to uh, the origins of the country, the foundations of the country, um, and and the storylines that emerge from that, whether or not you are a an advocate of the 1619 Projects narrative storyline or an advocate of the 1776 narrative storyline, right? Okay, so storylines or narratives um, is... Is essential and important. What are the stories that we not only tell one another, what are the stories upon which we are building our worldview? And so, what is the storyline? What is the narrative upon which your worldview is constructed? Um, Mine is constructed uh, upon the storyline revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament that first there is a God, that he is ultimate, and that he has spoken. And having made himself known, um, I want to know Him. And so I want to utilize those ways in which the God who is and has made Himself known, I want to utilize those ways of knowing Him, which is why I study the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. It's why I am a person who is in the Word. It's why I am a person who advocates the transcendental virtues of goodness, beauty, and truth, because they are the virtues that characterize God Himself. And so if I'm going to evaluate narratives and narrative storylines in the culture today, I want to be um, radically committed to the truth, to reality. The truth is that which aligns with reality. And so as a Christian, I want to be a person who is radically committed to the narrative that is true. True truth, that which aligns aligns with reality, which is why, um, for those of us who are Christians— the truth actually does matter. We want to get to the facts of the case, and we don't want to get ahead of the facts of the case, which is why sometimes we are seem cautious or late to cover a story, and that's because we want uh, all the facts to be in before we say more than can honestly be said. All right, Ben Johnson is up next. He is the rights writer. He now serves as a media reporter for The Daily Wire. We're going to continue this conversation next.
2: is my right
3: a
0: right given by god to live a free life to live in freedom it's thursday so ben johnson is here he is a right he is a writer for the daily wire you can find what he's writing at dailywire.com you can also find him on twitter at the rights writer ben welcome back
2: Good morning, Carmen.
0: Thursday, one of my favorite days of the week.
2: And likewise, I always look forward to this conversation with you and uh, and Paul and uh, all of your great listeners.
0: Well, so talk with us about uh, narrative. And sometimes the narrative gets in the way of the truth. And so sometimes the media doesn't cover the story because they don't like the narrative. And then they find themselves, oh, well, now we have to cover the story because, after all, it's a story that cannot be ignored.
2: Well, I thought you did such a good service talking about uh, the, the power of narrative in the lead up to this segment. Uh, you know, we, we live, as you said, in a world where people make shortcuts. They make narratives uh, or meta narratives that explain everything in life and everything fits into this. And if it doesn't, then uh, like someone who's got one piece of a puzzle left and it doesn't fit anywhere, you'll just sometimes trim that piece to make it fit. Uh, that's that's largely what has happened, uh, not only with us individually, but with us as a society, where we're choosing information based on whether it fits our preconstructed narratives, and unfortunately, the media are also choosing the information that they give us and the way they cover the facts and the selection of which facts they cover based on whether it fits their greater narrative. Uh, so that's that's a, a major problem for those of us who are Christian. Of course, the psychologists have a word for it; it's called heuristics. Uh, It's basically just a mental shortcut. Uh, If you were mauled by a dog when you were young and you see another dog, then you don't go around dogs from that point forward. It's just a shortcut in your mind. Sometimes they're true, sometimes they're false, but it doesn't always account for all of the actual information that is available to us, which is why it's so important for us to be based in facts and reality, be as objective as possible. And essentially, everyone in media has uh, decided that that's no longer fashionable. So uh, you know you have MSNBC on the left, Fox News and others on the right, but uh, you know, those who are particularly committed to making sure, making sure that they get the story right and they get it from a Christian perspective are few and far between. So it's important that we end up in that number. And uh, for the the story that you were mentioning uh, on the, the Wuhan lab is a perfect illustration of that.
0: So tell people what's going on, Ben. Um, in this story, you know, right now, just. Give us the give us the top line um, as you see it.
2: Well, when uh, the the origins of the coronavirus first came along, we were all told that it came from a wet market in uh, in China and that it was transmitted from probably a bat or possibly a bat soup to an individual, and then those individuals were allowed to come from China to the United States and around the world, and that's how the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, came about. But there were hints even at the time that it may have originated in a lab at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they study exactly these kinds of viruses, and it may have leaked—not uh, you know, necessarily deliberately—it may have simply leaked out. But uh, that is a, a much uh, more rational explanation, some people thought, than the idea of uh, an inadvertent transmission uh, in through what's uh, what's called a human to a, 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 an animal to human or a zoonotic transmission. And so uh, the media immediately latched on to the first explanation because the Trump administration latched on to the second. Uh, when, whenever Donald Trump would say X, the media would say Y, by and large. And so uh, this went back and forth until we got a new administration. The only thing that has changed over the last year is administrations. And uh, suddenly you're getting this rethink of of masks, Uh, you're getting this rethink of whether vaccinations work, and you're getting the in in terms of whether it's okay to be unmasked after you're vaccinated. Uh, And now you're getting this second look at the Wuhan lab, which, uh, as you mentioned, there was originally a, a probe into that. The Biden administration shut down everything that Trump put into motion as soon as he could, even fired career people potentially illegally. But then uh, he's restarting this uh, this probe into the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and I thought it was put the most succinct way possible uh, by an NBC reporter named Ken Delanian, who was on a program uh, uh, hosted by Stephanie Ruhle on MSNBC yesterday. He was talking about all this, and he mentioned in January the Trump administration released all of the information that the, the media are currently using. Uh, they're backpedaling, saying there's new information. There's no new information. All of this was available, some of it as much as a year ago. But in January, the State Department issued a a fact report mentioning that people had been ill in the Institute of Virology in Wuhan, and they had not, uh, many of these people had done so before any of these outbreaks that were connected with this wet market. Delanian said said, this came out last January or in this January, quote, but that was dismissed at the time because it was the Trump administration, end quote. That was that it, it just puts it so succinctly that uh, if if it was said by the former administration, then it was rejected as though it were incredulous simply by their very existence
0: so that level of media bias Ben is why so many people don't trust what they hear I mean that's it right there in a nutshell,
2: and rightly so uh, we should not be uh, basing our media and our facts and uh, the entire coverage. Based on an opposition to someone, or in an affirmation to someone who's a human being. Well, that's not. We should set everything around reality,
0: right? I mean, that's not by definition journalism.
2: No, and, you know, the media had sort of this moment of realization in 2016 after the election that uh, they, they were out of touch with a certain segment of America. Uh, the, the editor of the New York Times, uh, one of the editors said, we need to get out of, out of New York City and get into the heartland, uh, as, you know, sort of like sending out an anthropological experiment, like going to Papua New Guinea to understand what the little people in the heartland believe. And uh, it only lasted basically until the uh, Russian dossier came out, and as soon as the dossier hit, they had a new narrative, which is, we don't need to understand that. We actually won that election, and uh, from that point forward, they became the PR agency for the hashtag resistance. And that's not healthy, whether you're in opposition or whether you're blindly following the leader of whichever party it may happen to be at any given time. Uh, you can't you can't live out your Christian vocation if you're living in a dream world. All of Christian all of Christian action begins with facts on the ground and how to best bring our talents to bear on what the actual situation is that we find ourselves in.
0: Yeah, it's a good time to remember that the word media comes from the word mediate, and sometimes that sheath layer is um, not actually uh, penetrable. It's just an interesting, uh, you know, sometimes it's a place of, of information stopping, not an information flowing through. All right, Ben Johnson and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we are going to lift up another Headline of the day. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right. Thank you for your engagement on the text line this morning. Remember, you can always text me your questions, your thoughts, uh, your observations. The number is 877-933-2484. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Um, All right, Ben, let's... uh, It is... um, is it mental health awareness month or improvement month, Paul? Or mental I think health, it's mental let's health pay month. Yeah, something like yeah, that. Let's pay. Let's pay attention to mental health this month. Month. Okay. Um, so, in that spirit, and because I think it's going to be an interesting conversation to have, Ben Johnson, tell us about eco anxiety.
2: Uh, I was perplexed when I saw this, but. Uh, Now this news had a a wonderful viral video that uh, came out talking about the spread of what it called eco-anxiety. And what that is, is people who have anxiety over the environment. Uh, People who are deathly afraid that because of environmental degradation, uh, climate change, and uh, what's sometimes called existential climate emergency, that uh, because of the words that are used, they're worried that they don't have a future. Uh, They're worried that uh, the world is going to fall down around them. A lot of them are worried about having children. And, of course, everyone is always worried about the world that they're going to leave behind for the next generation, but some of them are afraid to have children at all. Uh, They're afraid that the world is going to bake up, burn up, uh, fall apart around them, and that uh, their children will not be able to have a normal life if they have any children at all. Uh, So I got to looking into this, and this has been uh, metastasizing throughout our civilization, but particularly in the West and in North America uh, for For years, uh, there have been polls that have been measuring this for quite a while, but it has increased exponentially uh, far more than uh, what would be warranted. You have twenty nine percent of Americans just just three years ago who said they were very worried about the environment two years ago, The Kaiser Family Foundation and the Washington Post polled people ages eighteen to twenty nine they found more than two thirds, almost three out of four young adults said they were afraid. 66% said they felt helpless about the environment. And uh, some of them are more concerned about the environment than going to school or taking care of themselves. Uh, it's all that they think about because we've seen this sort of language inflation and claim inflation over time. Uh, when uh, I, I remember hearing the exact same thing when uh, at the very beginning of what was then called global warming, we had a lot of uh, catastrophic predictions, apocalyptic predictions placed in the world back in uh, back in my childhood. And it was something that I was a little bit worried about, but uh, I, I figured that this too shall pass. And uh, it, at that time, uh, a lot of us took it very seriously, but it was called global warming, then it became climate change, and then it was climate emergency, and then existential climate crisis. Uh, And when you have that kind of an inflation of the language, but not an inflation of the threat of the actual science, obviously you're going to produce anxiety. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the world all around us. Uh, Just to give one one quick metric to it, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mentioned this uh, just a, a few years ago in January of 2019. She gave a speech. She said that the world's going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change, quote unquote. That was in January of 2019. In April of 2019, Beto O'Rourke, who was running for president at the time, said we only have 10 years left. January of 2020, Greta Thunberg, the teenage uh, activist from Sweden, said the world has less than eight years to act. So no wonder the word "they're running out of time." They lost four years in a year. Uh, it's it's that kind of concern where obviously something is being said or predicted that doesn't actually rest on what the the climate science would say, that is causing anxiety. Yeah. Anytime you have anxiety, you know that there's a problem with our Christian faith, because it says in 1 John that love and fear can't live together. They can't coexist perfectly because fear has torment. It torments the children of God, and God won't have that. Perfect love casteth out fear. And so when we see a spread of eco-anxiety, we see people perhaps putting greater faith in uh, the IPCC or in the UN or in climate models than they have in the Word of God and then the assurance that Jesus Christ died for them and whatever happens he's holding the world in his hands.
0: I um in preparation for this conversation I I had a conversation about, you know, like what causes like a an existential anxiety, um you know, what are the things that foment that in us? And I was surprised, uh, I mean, some of the things that that actually gen this up in people um Are as seemingly, I mean, seemingly things that don't touch me. Like, I I mean, I drive by the Veterans cemetery literally every day because it is between my house and the interstate, and so every single day I drive by the veteran cemetery. I am not, I am not led into any sort of existential anxiety when I pass the cemetery, nor when I consider um, the men and women who so valiantly served this nation, and um, and now. Are, are are no longer in this world. Like, that's going to be true of everybody at some point. I don't find war museums or um, even the uh, news headlines related to war or natural disasters as uh, causing a- existential anxiety. And that's because I am already possessed of a peace that passes understanding, and I already recognize that, like, death is coming for us all. I'm really sober about that. But apparently, um, if you live in, in this imaginary place where this life never ends, and this is not only as good as it gets, but as much as you're ever going to have, um, I can see how people who have no eternal frame and no relationship with with God, I can see how fear would reign in their lives.
2: Absolutely. And you have that calculus that comes into play about, uh, is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep going? And uh, when you take a look, for example, at Europe where secularism is so widespread, uh, people have stopped reproducing because they ask, is it worth it to have a child and to bring a child into this world? And on my part, is it worth the sacrifice that it takes to raise a child? Uh, You have people asking, is it worth uh, bringing a child into the world with the ecological damage that uh, they're looking forward? Uh, and, And in these models, they keep predicting. Uh, is it worth it uh, to uh, to continue to work and uh, strive so hard every day uh, when there are other means where I could I could get a check and not have to work quite as hard or maybe at all? So all of these things play into it, and ultimately, what ends up being lost is the underlying potential that God has placed in every single one of his children, that uh, he's placed a potential in every one of us as a worker to use our talents and services to serve others. He's placed it in us in relationship with other people, whether that's as a father or a stepfather, or uh, perhaps uh, someone who's a good adult influence in other people's lives, perhaps a, a spiritual guide. So he's given us one another as the greatest gift that we have here on earth. And the love that we have for one another testifies and is a reflection of the love that he has for us in the eternal relationship that we will enter into. Of course, you see that in uh, the book of Ephesians where he's talking about marriage, but you see it everywhere in God's creation where his perfect love is transmitted through uh, certainly imperfect receptacles like ourselves, but we bring that to bear in everything we do. And if we don't, then it comes down to what is best for me and is it worth doing it or not? and ultimately civilization phrase under that kind of a secular framework.
0: Ben, as always, thank you so much. You guys want to read um, Ben's piece on this called The Antidote to Fear. You can find it at acton.org. You can find what he's writing today at The Daily Wire. Ben, as always, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. God bless.
0: Likewise. We'll be right back. Okay, some conversations are necessary and yet difficult. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and tell you in advance the next conversation is both necessary and difficult. So the book is Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. My guests will be the co-authors, Pastors Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. Let's prepare ourselves to have a difficult but important and necessary Conversation That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
2: If you jotted down every word you spoke to your teenager in a given day, what would the tally look like? Heavy on the criticism side or heavy on the praise? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Too many moms and dads get into the habit of tearing down their teens with the hope that they'll snap out of his teenage fog and shape up. However, I find that this method doesn't benefit either side. Mom and dads are anxious and angry, leaving teens confused, frustrated, and suffering from low self-esteem.
3: Consider taking this challenge, and count how many times you criticize your
2: kids today. Then work hard at condemning less and praising more.
3: Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
2: All right,
0: we're going to talk now about a topic that is really important, but also... Hard to talk about. Um, joining me now. I know we've got Greg Thompson. Do we also have co-author Duke Kwan? Do We have both. We all right. Well, we got Greg. Greg, welcome. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So, sometimes, sometimes the um, the connecting with everybody this early in the morning doesn't uh, doesn't always pan out. But we sure are glad you're here. Why don't you introduce yourself and then introduce Duke, even though he's not with us
1: sure so i'm um, uh, dr gregory thompson i um i have been a pastor and scholar and artist um, for a number of years and i am the executive director of an organization called voices underground which is seeking to promote the uh, history of the underground railroad outside of philadelphia and my co-author is reverend duquan who is a pastor at grace uh, meridian hill and, which is a multi-ethnic congregation in washington dc
0: okay and this project um, the book is Reparations, but I would describe it as a, a project that goes beyond just uh, the 200 pages of this book. Um, this project, Reparations, a Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. Why don't you cast a vision here?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think many, many people in the Christian church understand that we have um, very significant racial wounds in our community and. Yet um, there's been great disagreement over what our responsibility is, you know, to addressing those wounds. And one of the most important uh, parts of this conversation, historically speaking, but the least engaged by especially the white evangelical church is the concept of reparations, which is to say the active work of repairing those things which have been done um, through through racism and white supremacy in this country.
0: All right, um Pastor Duke Kwan is now with us as well, the co-author of this book. Uh the book again is Reparations, a Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. Duke, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
3: Thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We let Greg um actually introduce himself and he introduced you as well, and then he uh, kind of laid out the the vision for this project. Let me um let me start with uh let me start with this. First of all, the book is really well written, and I think it is very accessible. And I think that's important. I also think that as soon as, you know, like, Greg, we just heard you use um, a term, white supremacy, that I think for a lot of people is instantly inflammatory. And so let's just go ahead and deal with that. Um, So Duke, talk with us about the use of the term white supremacy and what is meant by it in this book.
3: Well, we understand that the word itself is, is, as you say, inflammatory, but we believe that it's a historically accurate term and an important description of really the legacy of racism uh, that we find in this country. Um, It is not a way to disparage uh, people who identify as white as being inherently uh, fallen, evil, evil, uh, uniquely uh, sinful in any part of way, but Uh, But actually, it's just simply to recognize uh, that this country, in so many ways from its beginning um, and through its many institutions, its norms, its cultural practices, um, has uh, a culture, a system uh, that has conferred advantage and special value to those who have been socially designated as white It's a unique form of racism that we find in this country, and it's our belief that unless we actually have more honest conversations about this, unless we actually uh, dive into the meaning of white supremacy and the reality of white supremacy, we will not see the need uh, for comprehensive racial repair. We won't see the need for reparation. So it's really a a matter of getting the right starting point and diagnosis.
0: So when you say comprehensive racial repair, a lot of Christians are going to— um they are going to lift up the not just the word but the uh, the biblical calling of reconciliation um you guys uh, are pretty clear in this book that that is not enough that's an important conversation to have but it is not uh, the end of the conversation. It's it's the beginning of the conversation. Uh, and so um, talk with us about, you know, some of these other rewords, right, that we're going to use here, reparations being one of them, but not the only reword in this book. Um, and so, you know, Greg, maybe pick up there and move us move us into and then maybe beyond the conversation about reconciliation to a conversation about reparations.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, so I, I think uh, I want to say first that we both obviously very much are, are for and work in our daily lives towards racial reconciliation, which is to repair the relational damage that's done through this um, cultural history of racism. But it's important for us to understand that um, because of the nature of the wounds, which are not just relational, but economic and political and um, historical and psychological, all these other dimensions, that, that simple reconciliation is not, is not sufficient. And, and I think as, as uh, Duke said a moment ago, we have to start with the right starting place. Um, If racism was simply about relational estrangement, then racial reconciliation would be sufficient. But it isn't. Uh, It it is about all these other other things that we we describe in our book, namely theft um, and the destruction of an entire world that needs to be repaired. And I I think I just want to say that um, we're not going to ever repair racism. Um, and the work that uh, the harm that it has done until we begin with the starting point that this is a culture-wide phenomenon that we designate as white supremacist, and that reparations, this comprehensive cultural uh, redress, is, is the only real strategy that will finally heal. And and frankly, we can't have reconciliation until we do these other things.
0: Um, Duke, do you want to add anything to that?
3: Yeah, just to Greg's last point. I think uh, again, reconciliation is is certainly a biblical goal. Uh, But what is ruptured fundamentally, even in the project of reconciliation, is trust. And uh, there's a sense in which we believe that reparations actually is a kind of precondition of reconciliation. Uh, That's not to say just the exchange of material goods and such, but what it means is that there's a violated trust and uh, there has been little show of good faith uh among those who have perpetrated the thefts of white supremacy where we need to reestablish look we we are in the game in, in a way where we're willing to lay down our lives make deep and uh true sacrifices we're willing to tell the truth um almost in uh, in the same way that we expect uh, the dynamics of abuse to be worked through we don't tell people just to reconcile and face each other uh and and hold hands in friendship uh, without real, real work being done, without a real reckoning of, uh, war, uh, of the harms and evils that have been perpetrated, uh, this is absolutely the kind of moral categories that we need to be thinking in. Um, uh, racism and white supremacy is a deep, uh, mass, uh, 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 terrible uh, form of racial abuse, um, and therefore uh, reparations starts to reestablish some of the trust. Necessary to start moving towards one another.
0: All right, we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to let you guys define reparations, um, and then um, I'm going to I'm going to ask a critical question and invite you to rectify um, one misstatement of fact that I know others have raised as well, and that is about the uh, the the numbers of people. Um, enslaved, not necessarily uh, in a particular time period, but in a particular place. And so because this is a conversation about America, um, I want to I want to talk about that as well. We're talking um, we're talking with the co-authors of Reparations. My guests are Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. We'll be right back. Show me your face. Fill up this space.
3: My world needs you.
0: Right. All right, continuing my conversation with Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. They are the co-authors of Reparations, A Christian Call to Repentance and Repair. And yes, I see and hear all of you on the text line, so appreciate all of that input that you're giving us this morning. You can go ahead and text your questions and your comments to me at 877-933-2484. Um, guys, let's tee it up this way. What, uh, what does reparations look like? And um you know, what are reparations? And then we're gonna to get to the question about 12 million versus 300,000 enslaved people.
1: Sure, Duke, you wanna start with the reparations question I can address
3: slavery? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we understand reparations it, to be simply this. First of all, the word is based on the root, meaning repair, uh, repair, um, that's reparations. And what we're repairing are the ways that things have been broken Uh, by the ravages of of racism in the past. Uh, More specifically, we understand the moral logic of reparations uh, uh, in the Bible to be driven by two things. One, the ethic of restitution, and two, the ethic of restoration. So restitution is simply uh, God's call that those who are guilty of theft uh, give back, not just confess their guilt, but give back what it was that they had taken. And restoration is the ethic that we find in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is uh, even if you were not yourself the theft originally, even if you are not culpable of stealing, uh, that you are called by neighbor love, by the love of Christ to restore all that was taken uh, by those who have been, uh, uh, from from those who've been robbed. Uh, So reparations is the giving back, the restoration of people that have been victims of theft. And we believe, Uh, That the nature of white supremacy, the social effect of white supremacy has been uh, the theft of truth, the theft of power and the theft of wealth, a comprehensive theft across American history. That's what we're returning to people, sort of uh, giving back at each in each of those ways, creatively and sacrificially to the African-American community, all that's been taken from them.
1: Yes. Um, Would you like to ask the question again by or You want me to?
0: Yeah. No, I'll I'll ask it because I think that um, for people who haven't yet read the book, you know, Mm I I I want I want us I want us to be able to um, acknowledge this point so that if other people read reviews of the book and they see this, they don't just um, then set aside our entire conversation imagining that I wasn't paying attention. So I'm paying attention yeah, yeah. Uh, for yeah. those of you that are out there listening. All right. So this is a question about the characterization of, um, of the number of people or sort of the historicity of the number of enslaved people. Now, I do in no way want to minimize the horrific reality that 300,000 people um, came were brought forcibly as slaves to what is now the United States of America um but when when we read the number 12 million human beings being caught in the slave trade between the 15th and 19th centuries in America the word america for people reading is going to be understood as the united states of america and really there i think we're talking about the americas not the not the america that we live in now so i just wanted to give you the opportunity to make that clarification
1: yeah thank you. I think that's really helpful, and I appreciate the question so uh, it's it's really beyond controversy that there were twelve million people that were caught up in the in the transatlantic slave trade, and that included the Americas as you note, and also the Caribbean. It's also true that uh around four hundred thousand of those landed in what we call the uh what we call america now um and but you, <laughs> I think it's really important to remember that there's a that there is a distinction between the transatlantic slave trade and the internal slave trade. So, for example, you know, by 1790, there were 800,000 enslaved people in the United States, and by 1860, you know, there had been roughly seven million uh, in, in enslaved people in the United States, and and this is because uh, slavery actually grew in the United States after the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, because it, we were we were quote breeding our own our own money as as for as Southern enslaved folks talked about it so I, I think this this one review who tries to in our in our judgment minimize the impact of the enslavement by saying it was only roughly 400,000 people was profoundly misleading because it did not acknowledge that the Americas a and the Caribbean functioned as a singular economy which is true. And B didn't acknowledge anything about the gro- the profound growth of enslavement under the under the internal slave, slave trade and the, the domestic slave trade. So I think that we have to be talking about um, the the comprehensive nature of this and and saying that four hundred thousand people or less uh, were brought here is profoundly misleading in terms of the impact of the slave trade on this country.
0: Okay, so I uh, so so thank you for clarifying that. Um, I also. Wonder if, as Christians who have a kingdom mindset and who acknowledge that um, nations exist in ways now that nations won 't ultimately exist in uh, the kingdom of heaven, and that we have millions i mean like forty million enslaved people around the world now and that and that a Christian concern goes beyond the bounds of. Some sort of American nationalism. I mean, I hope you hear me. I hope you hear me accurately here. I'm not saying um, that it's not right and righteous to focus on the concerns here in the United States of America of um, of people who uh, who were enslaved uh, here. Um, but I'm also wondering how, as Christians who are kingdom minded and kingdom oriented, um, we have less concern, maybe little concern for people enslaved right now who, who are experiencing like theft in real time. And so don't hear me minimizing this, hear me raising a concern that I know you are going to hear from others. And so I just, you know, you might as well hear it from me.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a helpful perspective, Carmen, because we certainly uh, acknowledge and affirm uh, the Bible's call to be concerned for you know what we call global missions, and to have a broadly global and international concern for all all different forms of evil um, and all different kinds of callings of repair, but we also believe that there's something to a theology of place, and there's uh, a responsibility that we have to the things that are actually happening in our own backyard as well. Um, In other words, uh, we we think it's important to care about modern-day slavery in our own backyard, uh, sorry, uh, uh, around the world. uh, But we also think it's vitally important as Christians, as missionally called Christians, uh, to engage the realities of white supremacy, uh, even in our own neighborhoods and cities. Um, And that's especially true of the American church, uh, American Christians, who corporately Uh, have actually been uh, participants in the historical uh, theft of African Americans. So uh, this is something that we don't see as an either-or thing, but something that we definitely uh, need to take seriously, and that's been neglected for far too long.
0: All right, you guys, this is a a really critical um, theological, moral conversation that we as Christians must have Uh, Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson uh, have done an excellent job writing a book that is very concise and accessible. Uh, It's got a ton of historical stuff. It also has what I call really good mental hooks. I like the way that you um, describe and break down racism, uh, personal, the need for repentance, relational, the need for reconciliation, institutional, the need for reform, cultural, the need for repair. There are a number of lists um, like that in the book and and places to, you know, mentally— Mentally categorize things. Um, it is. It is. There are very, very helpful things here. I also think it's a good starting point for a conversation for folks who have resisted this conversation. And so, let me say that. And then let me also say I think there's room for um, for for critical give and take on this topic. And I don't think that uh, Duke and Greg are resisting that. So let's talk about opening up the conversation. Um, and thank you guys for your willingness to wade in. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the conversations. It's going to foment. Um, and thank you for you know the the change that we all recognize is necessary. We invite it, and this gives us some um, some places you know to say, hey, put a foot here and take a step forward. And I really really appreciate that.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson. The book is Reparations a Christian call to repentance and repair. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks for your robust interaction on this topic. I definitely know there's more to be said. Thank you for beginning the conversation. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.